All right, if you'll stand with, us, with me this morning, turn to Genesis, the 12th chapter. We're going to read the first four verses. Jordan's message this morning entitled, Play Nice and Share. Don't keep your faith to yourself. Something maybe my children should listen to. Again, we're going to read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for the direction it provides. Lord, I pray that through Jordan this morning you would share with us, Lord, how we can share with others, how we can take your word and your message uh, to the ends of the earth. Lord, whether we know uh, where we're going or not, God, you call us to be a light in this world. And we just thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's so great to be with all of you here today, and it's really an honor and a privilege, and I'd just like to start out by just saying thank you to all of you. Um, I don't think words can properly express um, how grateful Nikki and I are to have Glenwood Baptist Church as our supporter to go to the Philippines, as our partner in ministry, and all that you've done for us to help us in this endeavor. And so we just want to say thank you for your prayers and for your giving. Um, Just a little update on us. We're at... 39%, 39%, pushing 40% of our support raised. Uh, and right now, Glenwood is the first stop on a long journey for us uh, for the fall. We are going to be on the road from now until the first weekend of December. And so just continuously living out of our car, visiting churches, and sharing our passion for the Philippines. And so we're excited to see how God blesses through uh, this fall campaign and all of the churches we'll get to spend time with. But we're excited to kick it all off right here at Glenwood. And so uh, we just can't wait to get to the Philippines and start representing um, you, all of you there as we serve God. Um, <clears throat> as I said, it's just an honor to be here before you and to examine God's Word together. Because as uh, the children of God, all of us here today, we need to learn from the Father. And as His children, we have a lot to learn together, right? You know, that just comes with being a child. Um, you need the wisdom and guidance of your parents and to prepare you for life. And we're never finished learning and growing from those older and wiser from us. We're never finished learning and growing from God. And spiritually, we have so much to learn. But, uh, you know, we don't make it easy sometimes. We can be kind of stubborn and resistant, right? Uh, you know, we can throw spiritual tantrums at times and try to resist God's growth in our lives. And, uh, like... I appreciate what Kirk said, because many of us as parents, or many of you as parents, I'm not a parent yet, but uh, can sympathize with the idea that as a parent, you know, I, I'm curious, what is the hardest thing to teach your child? What is the hardest to help them learn? Um, you know, he said, you know, maybe his kids need to come in and learn about sharing, but, y- you know, um, you know, there's things that are, I'm sure they're hard to instill in a child. Is it the physical lessons? Is it the walking? Is it the potty train? Is that the hardest? Or is it the intellectual lessons, helping them learn to read and write and all of those things? 
Or is it, in fact, the moral lessons, something like learning to share? You know, that's a real tough one for kids. And I'm convinced it's, it's tough for us as children of God. But, uh, you know, I remember growing up seeing this kind of displayed in the life of my sister, actually. And I got permission to share this. But um, she herself said she never shared well when she was growing up. She struggled with learning that, with just being kind and playing nice and, you know, sharing what she had. Because she was the only girl. She was the young, you know, for the longest time it was just me and her. She was the youngest. She was the baby of the family. She was the center of attention. And, she, you know, she was just spoiled. You know, she would admit that. She would, she would agree with that statement, I think. But, um, you know, it, it was all good and well until her seventh birthday. And when she was turning seven, my mom was pregnant with my younger brother, Jared. And so now, after a good long stretch, you know, she's no longer going to be the baby of the family. She was learning that she was going to share the spotlight. And she didn't like that. And on top of that... She had to move into my room, and we had to have bunk beds. She had to give up her room and share a room with me. And so, you know, just she had to learn how to share in that situation. And then it just so happened that my brother's birth was going to be right around her birthday in late June. And so mom, not wanting to, you know, try to go to trouble of putting together a birthday party when she's about to give labor, you know, said, well, my friend, her daughter, is turning seven as well at the beginning of June, so we'll just do a joint birthday party for the two girls and let them share a birthday party. And, you know, it'll work out well because then my mom's friend could kind of plan it all and we'd just have a swimming party at my grandpa's house and, you know, it'd be all good, a great idea. But, you know, Erica didn't think that was such a great idea. She didn't like, now she was sharing her birthday party. And it was three weeks early, and there's all these strangers, strange kids around that she didn't even know. And so, you know, what a birthday that is. But to top it all off, and then the clown that my grandpa got to come and entertain the kids, thought it'd be funny that when they were wishing the two girls happy birthday, he got all the kids to say happy birthday airhead instead of Erica. Well... <laughs> She didn't like that at all, and the kids just laughed uproariously and teased her. In fact, for several years in elementary school, kids would tease her and call her airhead. So this was just a really bad time for my sister, learning how to share. And then the icing on the cake. My brother was born the day before her birthday, and so from there on out, she would have to share her birthday forever with him, and she had to spend that birthday all day in a hospital, bored, and my mom forgot to wish her happy birthday. <laughs> so so there were some real tough life lessons on sharing for my little sister when she was seven. But it's important. She needed to learn to have a sharing attitude. And for us, too, you know, we need to learn to be sharing. As children of God, we need to share. God says that's important for us. We must learn in this, our spiritual lives. So what does sharing mean for us as believers? Well, turn to Hebrews 13, 16 first. And we'll look there. But sharing really is at the heart of our new life in Christ. It's everything. We're supposed to be about selflessness, sharing, giving, not the old selfish sin nature that we previously were ruled by. It's supposed to be about others, not us now, which is what sharing's about. And should define our devotion to the Lord. The author of Hebrews had this to say about sharing in Hebrews 13, 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So first of all, we learn here from this verse that sharing is not to be neglected. We're not to forget to share. 
We're not supposed to neglect it. If we want to honor God in our lifetimes, we must share. It says here that it's a sacrifice that God is well pleased with. You know, Christ did away with the old sacrificial system of atonement with, you know, the sacrifices of lambs. But still, we are called to sometimes sacrifice in our lives to honor God, to show that we are putting Him first and not ourselves. And he says sharing here is what is a sacrifice that we need to be committed to. It means putting to death that selfish nature that wants life to be all about me. What are we called on to share? Well, turn to Matthew 28 and verses 18 through 20, and we'll see this. What are we called to share? <clears throat> Familiar passage um, here. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so I see here, this is you know where I got the message or the title for our message. We need to play nice and share. We need to not keep our faiths to ourselves because that's what Christ is saying here. You've been given a great gift. You have the knowledge of Christ. You have a relationship with him. You have grace in your life, and you need to go out and share that. And from this verse, I also see that the second principle is, is not to be delegated. Sharing is not to be delegated. It's not for somebody else to deal with and for us to just kind of go on with our lives. You know, Christ here did not you know, single anybody out in the Great Commission here. You know, oftentimes Christ would separate himself sometimes with just some intimate time with Peter, James, and John. You constantly see him going off with those three and kind of doing some stuff alone with them and talking and teaching them. And, you know, sometimes with Jesus was just with the 12 disciples and not with the crowds, and he separated himself. But here he leaves it general. He doesn't specify anyone. This go, go therefore and share your faith here is for all of us. When we read this, he's speaking directly to us. It's not to be delegated. It's not to be pushed off on someone else. We all have that, that command to go share our faith. And I find it interesting that, that these were his final words. He doesn't say, that, you know, after three years of spending time with his disciples, the last thing he wants them to remember is not to read their Bibles daily. It wasn't to pray every day or to grow in their faith. He wanted them to do those things. But the thing he thought that was the most important to communicate to them was to go and share their faith. So now... That's our mission as well. So this morning I want to share with you the biblical mandate for reaching the lost for Christ, for sharing our faith, both here and abroad, and why we share our faith. Because God has placed that purpose throughout his word. It's as relevant in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, as we'll see today. So let's go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12 there, back where Kirk was reading. And we'll go back over those verses and see how this applies to the concept of us sharing our faith. <clears throat> We're going to focus in on one of his, God's most well-known and faithful servants, Abraham, here, and learn a lesson from him on how to learn to share based on his life. But we'll also be looking at his nephew, Lot, because Lot also um, paints an interesting lesson for us to learn from. But um, as we, we, we need to remember is everyone here, and this is in your notes, everyone here should share their faith because you have received an incredible gift. As I said, we have received salvation. We have something incredible from Christ that he sacrificed to give us. We have been reconciled to God. And so we need to share that because it was a gift freely given to us. So we need to give it freely. We can't hog it to ourselves. 
And also, we, everyone here should share their faith because you have what the world needs. That's in your notes as well. You have what the world needs. So here's the simplest definition of missions I can think of. We have something everyone else needs. That's missions. We have the message of hope in Christ. We have the knowledge that Jesus Christ came down, um, took the punishment for our sins on the cross, was resurrected, and now we can have new life away from our old sin nature in Him. And so you see all around us today that people are searching for hope. They know they need something. They're looking for something to fill their lives. People are searching all around you for meaning. They're hopeless and confused. They're mired in sin that's destroying and eating away at them because there's a tragic disconnect that exists between the Creator and the creation. And we now, as believers, are meant to bridge that disconnect. So it's not meant to be this way. We are supposed to be of with God. We are supposed to be in relationship with Him. So let's look at um, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 here first, and see. we'll learn here um, the three principles that should motivate us to take action. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, first of all, we learn here from these verses that sharing is an instinctive response to knowing God. And we'll see that in a second. But sharing is an, should be an instinctive response for us to, that, because we know God. Here we have the Abrahamic covenant, a passage we're very familiar with. God cho- chose Abraham, separates him out, for great blessings, great promises here. And he singled out not because of any merit of his own. He didn't do anything to you know, deserve this. You know, God doesn't say why he chose Abraham, and I think that's important because if it said why he had chosen Abraham, we'd probably try to duplicate whatever that was in our lives. We tried to earn our way into God's grace. But it doesn't say why he chose Abraham, only that he did. That was a very uh, merciful, grace-giving um, thing to do. And so it wasn't because of Abraham that he was singled out. But I also find that in the midst of these promises, there's a command in there. It says, you know, he, God says, I will bless you. And he lists all these blessings. But he says, and you shall be a blessing. You know, God was blessing Abraham with a purpose. Not for him to keep the blessings to himself. Not to just selfishly hoard them all in. But to bless other people. Specifically at the end of these verses when it says that all the families of the earth shall be blessed, you know, God's referring to pre- you know, prophesying of the coming of Jesus Christ through the line of Abraham. You know, everyone would be blessed because of Abraham, because of that. But immediately, Abraham had a responsibility to bless others. You know, what does this mean, blessed to be a blessing? That Abraham was being blessed to be a blessing. Well, it, really, this, these verses are a turning point in human history. God's desire has always been to have all men reconciled to him, removed from our sin, and back into relationship to him. And here, God begins a new direction with dealing with man. Because the first 11 verses, God had allowed men to individually come by conviction of conscience to him. And some men walked with God, like Abel and Enoch and Noah. But for the most part, up to this point, all of the world had been wicked. In fact, he had felt the 
need to start over, wipe out the world with a flood and start over with Noah's family. That's how wicked mankind had been up to this point. But now he is going in a new direction in how he wants to deal with mankind here. It's uh, Bible scholar Merrill Unger notes here that thus far God's divine dealing has been with Adam's race as a whole sunk into universal idolatry. God now selects a tiny stream from the great river of humanity through which he will eventually purify the river itself. So from this point forward, God is separating Abraham so that all of mankind can be reconciled to him, redeemed. He's enacting a stewardship of grace. He's giving grace to Abraham so that he can be a good steward and share it with others. And Abraham now had the responsibility to testify of the one true God to all men. In fact, Genesis 27, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 27, add some clarity to this, this responsibility of Abraham. It refers to, God actually refers to Abraham as his nabi, which is the Hebrew word we usually see translated as prophet. And so that's actually the first time, out of hundreds of times that words occurs in the Bible, the very first time is in conjunction with Abraham in Genesis 27. Well, when we think of prophet, we often think of prophecy. We think of predictions of the future, what God has in store for the future. And we think of a prophet as someone who makes prophecies. But the Hebrew word nabi literally means simply spokesman or speaker. Abraham was being called God's mouthpiece on the earth, his spokesman, to declare him to people. He now was God's representative to all of mankind. And as we read in verse 4, Genesis 12, 4, Abraham immediately fulfilled this, this role. Genesis 12, 4 says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And it's those five words, final five words right there that I just read that really stand out to me. Because it tells me that Abraham's instinctive response to being visited by God and promised all these blessings was to go and tell his family. He goes and tells them, God's telling me to move. He's telling me to go to this place I've never been before. The God of all creation spoke to me, and he wants me to move. And he says, he'll actually bless me. He's choosing me for something. And he tells his family this, and then he moves. But his nephew, Lot, moves with him. His nephew, Lot, takes a step of faith as well. His nephew Lot leaves everything behind that he had ever known to go to some place with his uncle that he, was not, that he had never seen before. His nephew Lot, I think, made a decision to follow God as well. He wanted to be with his uncle, the connection to God that he had in his life, so he could learn more about the true God. He could learn to walk righteously and follow him. And so Lot leaves everything behind as well. So these two men are now journeying to a faraway land, obeying God, and God says to them, I will bless you, but you will also be a blessing to others. I think that promise, as we'll see in the verses today, is passed down to Lot. Now, Lot couldn't count all the promises to Abraham to himself. He wasn't going to be a great and mighty nation. He wouldn't have the Redeemer come through his line. He wasn't promised the land that they were traveling to. But he was promised that he, I think, from Abraham would be blessed. Abraham was passing blessings on to him. And as we see as they go to the promised land, he begins to experience these blessings. Both of them do. Um, he, Lot was the only family member who left everything behind. And so now we learn from them this blessed concept of being blessed by God, to be a blessing to others, sharing what we're given by God, that we too need to be a blessing. We too need to be a nabi, a prophet, a spokesman for God. That's what we are called to be, to declare the glory of God to people and call men to repentance. 
From this point forward in human history, from Abraham on, no longer can those who follow God and receive his blessing just sit by idly on the sidelines. We are now involved. We are now a part of the plan to achieve victory. So we are being used by God. And that means, um, means several things for us. It means we are meant to intercede on behalf of others through prayer. We are meant to lift up people in prayer, lift up people who do not know God, and pray on their behalf. Bring them to God, praying that God would work in their hearts, till the soil of their hearts, and prepare it for the seed of the gospel. We need to pray for believers and non-believers. We're also meant to articulate the Lord's commands to the world. Like Abraham was being commanded to be a spokesman of what God wanted from mankind, we are now called to articulate the commands of God to the world, to tell them how they can honor God, how they can seek after God, how they can have a personal relationship with Christ. We're also meant to call sinners to repentance. And so now as we continue on with this story, you may be familiar with what happens next with Abraham and Lot. Like I said, they travel to the promised land. And it says in the Bible, when they get there, that they've been blessed by God so much, both of them, with so much livestock and wealth and servants following them, that they actually had to split up. They could not stay together. They had to go separate ways. And so it says Abraham goes north into the promised land, and Lot goes south to the valley of the Jordan River to live by the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is where we really need to focus, because from this point on, their lives go down two separate paths centered on how seriously they took the command to take God's blessings and share it with others. We can, this is where we'll be learning what, how we need to be doing this in our lives, how we can play nice and share our faith. So there, uh, if you want to, go ahead and skip ahead to Genesis chapter 18. And we'll examine their lives from this point forward. First, we're going to look at Abraham's example. And we'll learn our next point here. Sharing is a mark of compassion that mirrors the Father's heart. Sharing is a mark of compassion that mirrors the Father's heart. This is a principle of sharing our faith that we need to learn today. We need to really just take in and, and feast on. And just as we go to Genesis 18, just a little setup here. As you remember, Kirk read that when Abraham was first promised all of these things, these blessings, in uh, chapter 12, he was 75 years old. Well, now almost 25 years have passed that he's been faithfully following God. He's had his trip-ups along the way. He's had his points where he's sinned and he's made mistakes. But every time, every time he's, he screwed up, every time he stepped away from God, he always turned back God, to God and stepped forward towards him, sought after him. And so after 25 years here in Genesis 18, angels, God sends some angels to come and visit Abraham and bring him a word from God. In particular, God is ready to fulfill one of his promises to Abraham that Abraham's been waiting 25 years for. You see, Abraham and his wife had never had a child. And Abraham had been waiting his whole life for a son to be a dad. And now God is here in chapter 18 telling him, you're going to be a father. You're going to be a daddy. You've got a son on the way within a year. And that just excites Abraham. He, remember, he's waited 25 years for this. He is now 100, almost 100 years old, and he's waited a lifetime to have a son. And now God tells him, it's going to happen within a year. Man, I can only imagine how excited, how exuberant he is with this news, you know. And so this happens in chapter 18, and then the, the angels leave, 
And they continue on towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the Lord addresses Abraham directly in verse 17. So let's start there in verse 17. It says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See he, there, he kind of brings up that promise again. And I don't think he's doing that without reason. He just has promised a great blessing to Abraham um, that you are going to be a father. And then he kind of prods him and says, Hey, remember though, when I bless you, you're to bless others. When I give to you, you're supposed to give freely to others. So he reminds of them this. And then continue on in verse 19. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave, I would go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we said Abraham has been singled out for, um, to be told um, an interesting message. He's told that judgment's coming on these cities, on the people of these cities that have been very wicked in the way they've lived. They've been rejected God's rule. They've been rebelling against him, engaging in sin. And so God, you know, I mean, Abraham's on a high. He's on an emotional high. He's going to be a father. You know, he's just excited. You know, that's what he wants to focus on. And then God brings this message kind of as a downer. He kind of brings this message, well, I'm going to come and judge these people, these wicked sinners. But why is God doing that? He's reminding Abraham he's the nobby. He's the spokesman. He's the representative of God. And he's deliberately here reminding Abraham that I am blessing you so you can bless others. And here are some people that don't know me, that are admired in sin, and they need to turn from that. And so he affirms his divine confidence that Abraham, Abraham will pass this on, pass blessings on to others. And what follows is a testament to Abraham's spiritual growth and taking this to heart. And just let's continue in verse 23 of chapter 18. It says, And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but, am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And I won't read the rest of the chapter, but he continues on like this. He keeps pleading with God. God, if there are thirty righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare everyone for that? Will you spare them? And he says, Yes, I will. God says that. And then he says, if there are 20 righteous in the cities, will you spare them all for the sake of those 20? And God assents. And then he says, if there are just 10 righteous people there, will you spare them? Well, why is it Abraham doing this? I mean, we could easily construe that he is questioning God's morality, that he is you know, arguing with God and being offensive. But that's not what God, Abraham is doing here. He is recognizing that there are people here who are in need of God in their lives, even if they don't recognize it. He's showing a sign of compassion because he's lifting them up. You know, he's not just, he could very easily just prayed and said, God, 
hey, you know my nephew Lot and his family live there. Will you spare them? Will you remove them from the city and then just wipe out the wicked? He could have done that. He could have said, just please spare my family from this destruction that's coming. But he doesn't do that. He says, if there are righteous people there, please, for their sake, spare everyone. Well, why is that? Well, I think Abraham understood the heart of God. Abraham did not want these people spared so they could continue on sinning against God. That wasn't his desire. He wants them spared so they can have more time in their lives to repent and turn to God. Because that's what people need. They need to repent from their sin and turn to God. And once we're dead, that, that opportunity to repent, to turn to God, is over. And so he desires that for these people. If there are 50 righteous people, or even down to 10 righteous there, those 10 righteous people can be a testimony, a light to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They could call those people to repentance, and God could spare the city. And so that's Abraham understood God's heart. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Peter 3.9, I think it really gives us insight into the heartbeat of God. And I think God was really spurring Abraham here on in this compassion. Because in 2 Peter 3.9 it says, it answers, why does God allow evil to persist in this world? Why does he allow evil men, wicked men, who do harm to others, who hurt people, who abuse kids or murder or steal? And Why does God allow people like that to continue living? Why does he allow them to persist in this world? Why has Jesus not returned to the world yet? Why has Jesus not come um, yet as he promised? Why is, he del- is it still far off? Why are we still waiting on that? Well, in 2 Peter 3.9 it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God delays his judgment. He delays the coming of Christ because he wants all of mankind to be... Um, Redeemed, He wants all mankind to repent. See, God, his righteousness demands justice for sin. His righteousness demands judgment for our sin. But his love and desires reconciliation. And those two meet in the, in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so he desires all mankind to know him, to experience his love and his grace. And that's why he tarries. That's why he delays, because he wants us as believers to share our faith while there's still time, to call people to him. And that's what he's doing here with Abraham. A biblical definition of compassion is, compassion is a sensation of sorrow for another person's spiritual state accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate their condition through the message of hope. We should be filled with compassion like this. We should, our hearts should ache when we look at the world around us, the people who are just lost in their sin and just drowning in hopelessness. That should just tear our heart asunder because it tears God's heart asunder. He wants them reconciled. If they just turn to his son and accept his, his death as payment for their sins. This is the character of God. His compassion is not just talking feelings, it is action. And we see it here that Abraham understood. He begins pleading on behalf of these wicked sinners in Sodom and Gomorrah that they might know God so that their lives would be changed, so that he could share the blessing of God's grace with them. So there's much we can learn from Abraham here. But unfortunately, the story continues, and there's much we can learn from his nephew Lot as well. If you turn to the next chapter, chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 12, but just kind of moving along in this chapter. So these angels that God sent to Sodom and Gomorrah arrive in the city, and Lot meets them at the gate. He, he, he's sitting there at the gate, and he meets them. 
And so he, in very hospitable fashion, he welcomes them into his house. He feeds them. He takes care of their needs. He's very righteous in the way he deals with them. But then the men of the city come out to do wickedness, to accost these men, to attack them and have their way with them. And Lot tries to protect them. And, you know, this, the, it says that the men are just were in such a frenzy that the angels had to strike the people of Sodom and Gomorrah with blindness just to protect Lot and his family when faced with this threat. And then they get down to business in verse 12, and they warn Lot of what's going to happen. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters, who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hands, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And skipping down to verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his, being Lot's wife, looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. So now we see Lot's half of the story. And there's a principle here we need to dwell on as well. And that is sharing is a responsibility that impacts the lives of others. So here's the problem. It's important for us to learn that we need to share our faith because there's consequences in other people's lives. They're going to experience God's wrath one day. That's why we have that compassion. And if we don't share it, we're just allowing them to continue on a path that's going to lead them to destruction. We need to beware of developing a selfish focus that ignores God's commands and ignores his compassion for the lost. Lot was a God-fearing man with a selfish focus. And that was the reason for his downfall here. You know, oftentimes law is portrayed as being completely given over to the sins of the city. But Peter, in his, in his uh, second epistle, in 2 Peter 2, 6 through 8, you know, paints a different picture for us. He says that Lot was still counted righteous by God and demonstrated because he was rescued. He says in, in verse 6, "...and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction." making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Peter says that Lot was a righteous man dwelling amidst unrighteousness, and his soul was grieved by their sin. Now I'm sure the sin was having an effect on him and the way he was living. But says he was a righteous man who honored God. Like, but his failure is not that he turned away from God. Um, like it was once said, what we have here is a failure to communicate. He did not tell people about God. He kept it all to himself. He didn't understand God's heart of compassion like his uncle Abraham did. He didn't desire that these people he was living with who were engaging in sin come to repentance. He wasn't like his uncle. And this paved his way to tragedy. You know, He had been blessed by God with great wealth, with great, um, you know, 
livestock, with servants, just a lot of good things. But he didn't share the blessing of the grace he had been blessed with, that God called him righteous. And he had a missed opportunity. We're not going to turn there, but Genesis 14 describes a time when Sodom and Gomorrah were ransacked by an invading army. And all the people of the city, including Lot and his family, were taken away as captives, as slaves. And when Abraham heard this, he races after this army with an inferior force. He fights them. He conquers them through the power of God and delivers all of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah out of slavery. He rescues them all. Well, what a perfect opportunity that would have been to tell the people, we were rescued because of the God of my uncle who delivered us from slavery. It was by God's power that he had victory over this army. But instead, Lot is sitting at the gate showing that he is a leader of the community in chapter 19. He used that influence of his uncle saving their lives to gain political power instead of spiritual power. You know, there's an important thing we can learn from Lot, and I just want to uh, um, just emphasize, when we have a failure to communicate, we will have a failure to impact lives. You know, Lot found that out the hard way. The men of the city ridiculed him. They didn't respect his lack of testimony amongst them. His own son-in-laws laughed at him and did not take him seriously, and no one was willing to listen to him at the end. And just to illustrate this for you, I had some people I asked, um, to help me out. And so I just need uh, you 10 to come on up here and just to help me draw a connection between all of this, what I'm going for here. I'm going to start with, uh, Mar- I need Marvel and Kathy on this end, and then the Wainers, the Werners, and then you four guys on the other end. So as they all come up here, because there's a connection between all that we've just read that would be easy to miss, easy to overlook. And uh, yeah. Easy to overlook, but these passages we read, they're all interconnected. You know, here, for example, we have our lot and his wife. That's right here. <laughs> we have our lot and his wife. And then these two couples represent his daughters, and said his daughters were betrothed. They were married and uh, had um, husbands that they were going to be married to. They were betrothed to these two men. So we have his two daughters and their husbands-to-be, who Lot called his son-in-laws. And these four represent just friends of Lot, his, his bowling buddies, maybe, or just co-workers. But right here, we have ten people standing in front of you. Well, remember, Abraham pleaded that if there are ten righteous people, just ten, in all of these cities, to spare everyone, spare the unrighteous, so that they could have more time to repent and turn from sin. Well, ten righteous, that just means Lot would have had to communicate the, you know, a need to obey and follow God to his wife, to his two daughters, and the men they were going to marry. And then all he would have had to do is just share about God with four other friends and see their lives change. Four friends. That's not very many. We, I, that's just a tiny amount of people he could have influenced and had a huge impact on these events. I mean, he just would have had to teach his family to follow God and impact four friends. But instead... He didn't do that. He kept the blessings of God to himself. He didn't tell people about God. He didn't command them to repent of their sin. And so these four men, you can go ahead and sit down. These four men, his friends, perished in the city. These two men, you can sit down, you two, uh, Randy and Zach. These two men, the men who were going to be his son-in-laws, the men who were going to be his, into his family, they perished in the city. And his wife, you can sit down real quick. His wife, it says she turned back. 
And she looked at the city when she was commanded expressly not to and was turned into a pillar of salt. So look at how much we have here now. Lot lost everything. He lost his friends, his family. He lost his wealth, his livestock, his servants. He lost everything because he wasn't willing to share what he'd been given, share the blessings of God. You can go ahead and sit down. Thank you. You know, what could have been if Lot had um, understood compassion on these people around him? doesn't mean that everyone in that city would have repented, but God it re- requires us to share about him. He requires us to share our faith, and then the Spirit takes over in the hearts of men. But as I was saying in Sunday school today, if we're not sowing the seed of God's word, if we're not telling people about God, you know, we're not get planting that seed so the Spirit can begin to work and see it grow and germinate in the hearts of people. So the question is, what kind of child of God are you going to be? Each of us needs to ask this personally, myself included. As believers, we're all part of this blessed to be a blessing. And God has a vision for each and every one of us to share what we've been blessed with. Share for you here in Kansas City. For Nikki and I, it's in the Philippines. And, um, you know, we are heirs according to the promise of Abraham. It says in Galatians. So we need to take this seriously. Theologian Matthew Henry writes... Those who through grace are themselves delivered out of a sinful state should do what they can for the deliverance of others. So we're made to pay it forward, to share God's grace, to share our faith. Not just to, like a young, immature child, keep it to ourselves, but to share it, to tell others about God. You know, Nikki and I are overwhelmed about getting to Manila because we'll get to do that. We'll get to share about God to Filipinos that have never heard about the message of God, never grew up in church, never got the opportunities we have. We get to teach young people in Baptist Bible College Asia, an institute that's training Filipinos to be ministers, to be pastors and missionaries, to share what they've been given. And I want to just, um, as we move towards the close, I want to share a video of this year's graduation of Baptist Bible College Asia to show you the work that's going on there and the fruit that's coming from Filipinos who are passionate about sharing what God's blessing with them. You know, those are the faces of young men and women we're excited about what they've been given. And they're there because of you. For the ministry, you have um, worked with Greg. Those are young men and women who a few years ago did not know about Jesus. But because you were willing to share through Greg, they now know and now they're excited to go out and share um, God's blessings. And Nick and I are excited to be a part of that. But I just want to end today, just challenge us all to examine our lives and ask, who in our life do we know that needs to know about Jesus? Who in our life has God strategically placed for us to impact? And who in our life is he calling us to have compassion on? to share our faith and to help them be reconciled to his love and his mercy and his grace. So as I go into prayer today, let's just ask that in our heart today and and walk away just reflecting on how much we've been given and how, how much we need to share. So, Father, we just thank you so much for today that we can gather and just worship you and that we... We can have an intimate, loving relationship with you. 
not for any merit of our own, but because of your, the work of your Son, and that you desire to redeem us from the sin and the destruction that we were um, trapped in. And I just pray that your Spirit would move in us and give us the, uh, the words and the wisdom and the guidance to go to people who need to know you and share with them about you, Lord. And that takes a big step of faith. That's not an easy thing for any of us to do, myself included, Lord. But I just pray that you'd help us have an eternal perspective on the need for this and to be willing to share the blessings that you're given us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.